You are listening to a Stab Premium Feature. Warning, the following contains graphic descriptions of violence. This is not a happy story. It's a true one. Junie Rios Martinez was an 11-year-old boy who was 5 feet tall and weighed 76 pounds. He won a kite flying contest which led to his picture being published in the March 21, 1991 edition of Florida Today, a local newspaper in Brevard County, Florida. The day after Junie's photograph ran in the paper, his mother received a phone call from a man identifying himself as Malcolm Denemark, saying that he was from the newspaper. The man told Mrs. Rios Martinez that he had seen Junie's picture in the paper and wanted to interview Junie for another article. He called back later that day while Junie was at home and was allowed to speak with him. Junie agreed to be interviewed, and his mother and the man arranged for it to take place at the Rios Martinez home before Junie's baseball game the following day. The next day, Saturday, March 23rd, Schwab went to Junie's home for the interview. He introduced himself as Mark Dean. Schwab explained that Denemark, his associate from Florida Today, could not make the interview because of a conflict, but that he was prepared to conduct it for Denemark. Schwab carried a spiral notebook with handwriting on several pages, which he said were questions that Denemark had prepared for the interview. Schwab did not work for any publication. He was employed in construction, and he was not an associate of anyone named Malcolm Denemark. Neither Junie nor his mother knew that, and they certainly did not know that the person they had let into their home was a child molester who had recently been released from prison. During the interview, Schwab sat on a couch in the living room, Junie sat across from him in a rocking chair, and Mrs. Rios Martinez sat on the couch just a few feet away. Schwab asked Junie about the things he liked to do, his favorite subject in school, his grades, whether they were drugs in school or peer pressure. Junie showed Schwab his baseball and surfing trophies, and Schwab told Mrs. Rios Martinez, you must be very proud of him. He gave Junie a gift certificate to McDonald's on which he had written, to Junie, from Florida Today. After the interview was over, Schwab told Mrs. Rios Martinez that he would like to interview Junie again for another, potentially national, story, and that Junie should attend a photo shoot for the story at Florida Today's office the next Monday. Mrs. Rios Martinez agreed and told Schwab that he could also take photos of Junie playing drums at a club where his father worked on Sundays. Schwab asked Mrs. Rios Martinez if he could go with them to Junie's baseball game that evening, telling her that he wanted to see Junie playing and get to know him and his family better. Mrs. Rios Martinez consented to that, and Schwab spent a half hour at Junie's baseball game that night. Schwab did not show up at the club to take photographs of Junie on the next Sunday. He called Mrs. Rios Martinez that night and told her his deadline on the story had been extended and the photo shoot canceled. The next day, Schwab called again. This time he told Mrs. Rios Martinez that he would no longer be involved with the article for Florida Today because he had taken a new position with a surfing magazine. Two days later, Mrs. Rios Martinez and her husband received a letter from Schwab. In it, he told them that their family was a special one, unlike any he had ever met, and that he could tell all their family members loved each other very much. The following Sunday, which was Easter, Schwab personally delivered an Easter card to the Rios Martinez family. Mrs. Rios Martinez was at home alone. She and Schwab discussed the letter he had sent to her and her husband. She told Schwab that it had affected her deeply, emotionally, and that she was very affected by and very moved by what he had written about her family. They also discussed the new job Schwab claimed to have. He told Mrs. Rios Martinez that he had gained a lot of contacts with surfing companies and he would like to help Junie get sponsored by one of them. 
He asked her to write up a resume for Junie and to get together some pictures of him that Schwab could take to his contacts. She did. Three days later, Schwab told Mrs. Rios Martinez that a surfing company was interested in sponsoring Junie. Later in the week, she put together more pictures of Junie and Schwab came by the house and picked them up. He then told Mrs. Rios Martinez that he wanted to take Junie to Daytona Beach to meet people from the surfing company over the weekend. That did not happen because the family was not able to make the necessary arrangements. The following week, Schwab dropped by the Rios Martinez household and told them that a surfing company, which he named, had agreed to sponsor Junie. He brought Junie a t-shirt with the company's logo. Schwab told Junie that he could have whatever surfboard he wanted and that he could even design it himself. He said the company would also provide Junie with clothing. Over the next several days, Schwab visited the family several times. He worked with Junie on designing a surfboard and clothes. He told Mrs. Rios Martinez that he had met with the president of the surfing company, and he hand-delivered to Mrs. Rios Martinez forged documents purported to be sponsorship letter and contracts. Schwab provided the family with a list of the surfing tournaments he claimed Junie would participate in. During one of his visits with them, Schwab again asked Junie's parents if he could take Junie to Daytona Beach to meet with the surfing company. They agreed. Schwab told them that he would pick Junie up at 10 a.m. on Sunday, April 14, 1991. That morning, however, he called and canceled the trip. Mr. and Mrs. Rios Martinez did not hear from Schwab again. Their son did. Thursday, April 18, 1991, began like any other school day for Junie. At about 7 a.m., he left home for a 6th grade class at Clear Lake Middle School in Brevard County. At about 2.15 p.m. that day, a bookkeeper at Junie's school received a phone call from a man purporting to be his father. The man told her to deliver a message to Junie. I'd like for him to not go home on the bus. I would like for him to meet me at the baseball field. Believing the man to be Junie's father, she contacted Junie's classroom and had him sent to the office and gave him the message. At about 3 p.m. that day, one of Junie's schoolmates walked with him for a short while towards the baseball field. She watched him jump the fence to get into the field. Another of Junie's friends later saw him and some tall guy getting out of a U-Haul truck. A short while later, the friend went back by the park, but the truck, the man, and Junie were gone. Junie's baseball game started at 6.30 that evening. Mrs. Rios Martinez went to the baseball field immediately after work, arriving shortly after 7 p.m. Junie was not there. Her husband, who was also at the park, had not seen Junie. Mrs. Rios Martinez immediately left for home, but Junie was not there either. She called Schwab at the number he had given her, but was unable to reach him. Later that evening, she and her husband reported their son missing. Early the next morning, Schwab learned from his mother that the police had been to the apartment he shared with her and wanted to question him about a missing child. About 45 minutes later, Schwab called his mother and told her that he was going to see his probation officer. He did not. Instead, in the late afternoon of the next day, April 20th, he called his aunt at Port Washington, Ohio, nearly a thousand miles from Cocoa, Florida. Schwab told her that a man named Donald had forced him at gunpoint to kidnap a boy named Junie. Schwab said that Donald had threatened to kill his mother if he did not do so. Schwab also told his aunt that Donald had forced him to have sexual relations with the young boy. The next day, April 21st, Miss Ginsey was visited by law enforcement officers who were looking for Schwab in connection with Junie's disappearance. While they were at Miss Ginsey's home, Schwab called. He called back later that day and officers were able to trace the call to a nearby town where they arrested him while he was still at a payphone talking with his aunt. The night he was arrested, Schwab voluntarily gave a recorded statement to law enforcement officers. Schwab's story, as recounted in that statement, is this. A man he identified as Donald confronted him outside a bar at about 2 a.m. on April 14th, the Sunday before Junie disappeared, and threatened to get him put back behind bars. On Monday, April 15th, Schwab received a call threatening to frame him for sexually assaulting a boy unless Schwab bought a motorcycle for another man. Because of those two threats, Schwab rented a U-Haul truck. He said he did it to make him look less conspicuous and checked himself into a motel in Cocoa Beach, Brevard County. According to Schwab's story, on Thursday, April 18th, Donald accosted him at a restaurant near the motel and forced Schwab into his car at gunpoint. Donald drove him to a field and threatened to kill his mother if Schwab did not do everything he was told. 
Donald then drove the two of them to a payphone Donald used to call Junie's school, pretending to be Mr. Rios Martinez, leaving the message that Junie should go to the baseball field after school. After making that call, Donald took Schwab back to the U-Haul and warned Schwab that he had better return to his motel room with some kid, or else his mother was going to be dead. Schwab immediately went in his U-Haul truck and picked up Junie at the baseball field. Schwab claimed that shortly after he returned to his motel room with Junie, Donald entered the room, locked the door behind him, drew his gun, and told Schwab, Now I've got you, you son of a bitch. Donald used duct tape to bind Junie's hands behind his back and a knife to cut Junie's clothes off of him. Donald told Schwab that he was going to have to do something to this kid, sexually. When Junie started to cry, Donald struck him a couple times, then taped his mouth shut. Donald then put his gun to the back of Schwab's head and forced him to have anal intercourse with Junie. Schwab also told officers that Donald forced him to leave the motel and told him not to come back for several hours. When Schwab returned to the hotel room sooner than he should have, Donald ordered him to pick up and handle a black foot locker that was in the room. Donald again forced Schwab to leave. After five or six hours, Schwab returned to the motel room, but Donald and Junie were no longer there. Schwab claimed that he did not know where Junie was. The officers returned him to Florida on April 23, 1991. While they were traveling from the airport to the police station, Schwab told one of the officers that he wanted to look for Junie's body. For several hours during that rainy, overcast afternoon and into the night, Schwab directed the officers accompanying him to various locations in Brevard County. At about 10 p.m., Schwab led officers to a largely undeveloped part of the county. Once there, Schwab walked down an unpaved road, stopped, began pacing around in the road, and then pointed into the woods. The search team crossed a drainage ditch and walked into the woods in the direction that Schwab had pointed. Not far from the road, they saw a small footlocker tied nearly shut with rope and covered with palm fronds and debris. The lid of the footlocker was slightly open and a white cloth was visible inside. Even from 10 feet away, the team could tell from the smell that a human body was inside. It had been five days since Junie was last seen alive. The officers took the footlocker to the medical examiner's office where it was carefully examined. When the ropes tied around the footlocker were cut and the lid opened, there was a blanket that had several stains on it. Under the blanket was a small boy's naked body in a semi-fetal position. His face was not recognizable because of decomposition, but through fingerprints, the body was identified as that of Junie Rios Martinez. Also found inside the footlocker were a pair of shoes, socks, underwear, shorts, a shirt, a watch, a yellow medal, a gold chain, two towels, some pieces of wadded up duct tape, and a manila folder. Mrs. Rios Martinez identified the clothing and jewelry items as belonging to her son. Some of the clothing she had bought for him the prior Easter, and the gold chain was a family heirloom his father had passed on to Junie. An autopsy determined that Junie had died from mechanical asphyxia, likely smothering or strangulation. In spite of the decomposition, signs of possible bruising around the anus were detected. One of the pieces of tape that had been wadded up in the footlocker had Schwab's fingerprint on it. A search of Schwab's card led to the discovery of a receipt from a Kmart. The receipt, dated April 18, 1991, the day Junie was abducted, showed the purchase of a footlocker. After Junie's body was found, Schwab gave another statement to officers. In it, he retold his story about a man named Donald forcing him to kidnap and rape Junie. This time, however, Schwab added that after he had intercourse with Junie, Donald had forced him and Junie, who was still alive, to get into the U-Haul that Schwab had rented. Donald drove them around various locations near Coco while discussing where he could dump Junie's body so that Schwab would be blamed for his death. One of those locations was near where Junie's body was found. Donald then returned Schwab to the motel and told him to get lost and not come back for several hours. When Schwab returned the next morning, he saw Donald carrying the black footlocker, which Donald handed to Schwab. He then ordered Schwab to leave again. According to Schwab's supplemental story, after he returned to the motel a few hours later, Donald forced him into his car and drove him out to where the footlocker was. He ordered Schwab to walk into the woods where Schwab spotted the footlocker. Donald then returned Schwab to the motel and threatened him for the last time. The next day, Schwab said he drove to Ohio. The state trial court judge, after hearing all of the evidence at a bench trial and sentence hearing, rejected Schwab's story about another man being involved and found that Schwab had acted alone. He found that Schwab had planned things so that the young victim left the baseball field thinking he was with a trusted friend. 
Once in the motel room, Schwab physically overpowered the slightly built child. He bound with duct tape the boy's hands, his mouth, and part of his face. He took a knife and violently cut off the child's clothes, leaving him naked, crying, and terrified. He punched him twice in the stomach. He put a bedsheet or mattress cover over the head of the little boy who was so scared he'd begun to shake. Schwab then anally raped Junie. The victim did not have the solace of unconsciousness during the ordeal, which lasted a substantial amount of time. He continued to cry throughout, stopping only when Schwab finally strangled or smothered him to death. A few days before his brutal abuse of 11-year-old Junie, Schwab had attended a group therapy session as part of the sexual offender program that was a condition of his probation. Schwab and his defense counsel made a strategic decision to waive a jury. After a week-long trial, the trial judge convicted Schwab on all counts as charged. At a penalty proceeding before the judge, the evidence that was presented on mitigating circumstances included the opinions of a number of mental health experts. Dr. Fred Berlin, a psychiatrist who is head of the sex offender program at Johns Hopkins University, interviewed Schwab in October 1991 and prepared a report on his behalf. According to Schwab's brief to the Florida Supreme Court, Dr. Berlin diagnosed him as having a paraphiliac disorder which consisted of homosexual pedophilia and sexual sadism. This disorder caused Schwab to find that young males are a powerful sexual attraction and to become even more aroused if humiliation and pain are involved. In Dr. Berlin's opinion, Schwab's disorder is a serious psychiatric illness that is not due to any voluntary decision on Schwab's part. Dr. Howard Bernstein, a licensed psychologist who also evaluated Schwab, testified for him at sentencing. Dr. Bernstein found no evidence that Schwab had any psychosis, formal thought disorder, major mood disorder, or any other mental disorder. Instead, he found Schwab to be rational and realistic when interviewed, but added that his social judgment and thinking are clearly impaired within a very narrow range of interest and concerns. He described Schwab as being preoccupied with sexual concerns and profoundly driven by his cravings and as having immature judgment at the very least. Dr. Bernstein also believed that Schwab likely uses what he described as false memories in order to justify his inappropriate sexual behavior and to blame others for it. Dr. Bernstein explained that Schwab's acting out sexually likely begins as a fantasy that gives arousal during which Schwab becomes fixated on a victim who fits his sexual predilection. Younger boys, same gender, smaller stature. In order to fulfill his obsessive sexual preoccupation, Schwab takes a ritualistic approach involving pre-planning and schemed events. His fantasy is fueled by his excitement and arousal, as well as by aggression and control. Schwab contemplates only the positive consequences of his actions. Orgasm, satisfaction, completion, authority, revenge. In order to justify acting on his fantasy, Schwab must distort real events to justify his behavior to reduce his guilt. According to Dr. Bernstein, after Schwab's pre-planning and scheming phase, there is hyper-aggressiveness marked by increased physiologic arousal and sexual excitement. Schwab begins to transfer his fantasies to a real victim, and that leads to the next stage, victim-seeking behavior. Once Schwab locates a victim that beats his fantasy, he begins his fantasy rehearsal process. The mode of gratification used by Schwab is sex, humiliation, and sadism. It is at this point Dr. Bernstein believed that Schwab loses control. His fantasy becomes an irresistible impulse, and Schwab has an incapacity to stop. Schwab is rationalized, minimized, and ultimately denied the possibility of any negative consequences from his action, and has given himself permission for the assault. The conclusion of this process is for Schwab to act out his fantasized sexual aggression. Under cross-examination, Dr. Bernstein acknowledged that Schwab had been able to control his desires for the several weeks during which he attempted to lure Junie away from his parents. Schwab was also rational in understanding that he would not be able to fulfill his desires unless he succeeded in being alone with Junie. Dr. Bernstein conceded Schwab believed that in order to fulfill his desires while protecting himself from punishment, he needed to kill his victim. Dr. Bernstein was of the opinion that Schwab knows he is ill, exhibits signs of guilt about his victims, and is in constant turmoil about it. However, he also described Schwab as egocentric and perhaps narcissistic, stating that he wanted to use people for his own pleasure. Overall, Dr. Bernstein subbed up Schwab as damaged goods, a sick child with sexually disordered behavior in an adult body, and certainly dangerous by history. 
In his opinion, Schwab showed a low potential for change and was one for whom rehab programs are unlikely to succeed. Dr. William R. Samick, a clinical psychologist specializing in treating sexual offenders and sexual abuse victims, testified as a rebuttal witness for the prosecution. Dr. Samick disputed Dr. Bernstein's conclusion that Schwab's sexual desires became irresistible impulses which he could not control. In Dr. Samick's view, such impulses can be resisted if there's sufficient motivation to stop. He believed that Schwab's known assaults had showed a progression and that Schwab had learned each time to do things better, more carefully, and slicker. Dr. Semek believed that Schwab is not a pedophile, but that he has an antisocial personality disorder and is a rapist, murderer, and mentally disordered sex offender. As a result, Schwab would have been more difficult to treat than your average pedophile. Dr. Samick concluded that it is highly unlikely that Schwab could be successfully rehabilitated and be safe without a lot of controls around him. In support of that conclusion, Dr. Samick noted that Schwab's offenses were very cool, calm, and carefully planned, and that Schwab went well beyond what is needed to rape or even to molest a child and that Schwab went to extreme lengths to seduce and charm the family. Dr. Samick found this last point notable because most child molesters choose victims who are easily molestable. Samick testified that Schwab's choice of good kids from good families who are happy reflects his own resentment that he didn't have a nice family and that Schwab gets back at his victims by destroying them. Dr. Samick also based his conclusion that Schwab is not treatable on the fact that he exhibited a tremendous amount of remorse while in prison, but that didn't stop his behavior when he got out. After considering the expert witness opinions and more evidence offered in support of aggravating and mitigating circumstances, the state trial court judge found that the aggravating circumstances outweighed the mitigating circumstances and sentenced Schwab to death. The conviction and sentence were affirmed on direct appeal and state collateral relief was denied. Schwab filed a petition in the district court seeking relief pursuant to 28 U.S. Code Section 2254. A habeas petitioner in custody under a state court judgment is entitled to that relief if the state court judgment rests on a decision that was contrary to or involved an unreasonable application of clearly established federal law as determined by the Supreme Court of the United States. The district court denied Schwab's petition for a writ. Schwab was granted a certificate of appealability on five issues. The one that Schwab emphasized in his briefs and oral argument had to do with an asserted conflict of interest he claimed affected his trial counsel. This claim was discussed and rejected by the Florida Supreme Court on direct appeal. The facts related to that claim are these. On March 23, 1992, two months before Schwab's trial was set to begin, a letter addressed to one of his court-appointed counsel, the Public Defender's Office, was delivered to that office. The letter was opened by a secretary and examined by the executive director of the office, two attorneys, and two investigators. The author of the letter, which was handwritten, said that his name was Doug. In the letter, Doug claimed that he had murdered Junie and said that he should have killed Schwab like he planned. The letter indicated that Doug knew Schwab had told the police about Doug committing the crime. Actually, Schwab had told the police about Donald committing the crime. But, apparently, insofar as the letter writer was concerned, the two were one and the same. Because Schwab had ratted him out to the police, Doug threatened in the letter to abduct, torture, and kill one of Junie's younger brothers because Schwab had told the investigating officers about Doug. The letter did not explain how Doug, or Donald, knew what Schwab had told the officers. On March 25, 1992, two days after receiving the letter, the Public Defender's Office informed the police about it and the next day handed it over to law enforcement. The letter was tested and found to have Schwab's fingerprints on it. On April 20, 1992, attorneys from the Public Defender's Office had been representing Schwab in the case for nearly a year. On that date, one of them filed a motion requesting that the entire office be allowed to withdraw from further representation. The stated grounds were that the prosecution planned to use the Doug letter against Schwab at trial and employees of the Public Defender's Office would be called as witnesses to testify about the chain of custody of the letter. The motion admitted that the Doug letter had been received by the Public Defender's Office on March 23rd, handled by six employees at the office, and given to law enforcement three days after it was received. At a hearing on the motion to withdraw, Schwab's chief trial counsel argued that he could not effectively cross-examine any of his co-workers of the Public Defender's Office to test their credibility because of his professional and personal relationships with them. 
Counsel also refused to stipulate to the chain of custody of the letter, even though no factual basis for contesting it had ever been suggested. The trial court denied the motion to withdraw. The state called five members of the public defender's office to testify to the chain of custody of the letter. Schwab's trial counsel insisted that he could not cross-examine them, and he did not. The trial judge questioned two of the witnesses after the prosecution concluded its examination of each of them. The judge asked the first witness, a secretary with the public defender's office, about her job duties, how mail is processed at the public defender's office, and what she did with the letter after she opened it, what the letter looked like and whether she read it, whether the copy of the letter introduced into evidence was the same as she remembered it, whether anyone had come into contact with the letter while it was in her control, and whether she had personal knowledge of who wrote the letter. None of her answers helped the defense. The judge asked the second witness, also a secretary, whether she had personal knowledge of who wrote the letter, whether she had read it or had changed it or altered it, whether the copy used at trial was the same as she remembered it, and whether she was acting in the normal course of business in handling the letter. None of her answers helped the defense either. On direct appeal, Schwab argued that he had been denied effective assistance of counsel because his attorneys were placed in the unenviable position of discharging their duty of advocacy on behalf of their client at the risk of perhaps alienating those persons with whom they work on a daily basis. The Florida Supreme Court held that Schwab had failed to meet his burden of showing substantial prejudice from the public defender's office continued representation of him. The court reasoned that the testimony of the public defender employees went to establish the collateral matter of the letter's chain of custody. Not only that, but the facts establishing that chain of custody had been set out in the motion to withdraw and were not in dispute. On July 1st, 2008, 16 years after he received the death sentence for the rape and murder of Junie Rios Martinez Jr., Mark Dean Schwab was injected with a lethal cocktail of drugs that paralyzed his lungs and stopped his heart. Officials at the Florida State Prison pronounced 39-year-old Mark Dean Schwab dead at 6.15 p.m. His final meal consisted of two fried eggs, four strips of bacon, two sausagelings, hash browns, buttered toast, and a quart of chocolate milk. should find you miss the sweet and tender love we used to share. Just come back to the places where we used to go and I'll be there. Oh, how can I forget you when there is a